Welcome to Forcing Function Hour, a conversation series exploring the boundaries of peak performance. Join me, Chris Sparks, as I interview elite performers to reveal principles, systems, and strategies for achieving a competitive edge in business. If you are an executive or investor ready to take yourself to the next level, download my workbook at experimentwithoutlimits.com. For all episodes and show notes, go to forcingfunctionhour.com. Today on Forcing Function Hour, I'm joined by Denise Scholl. We're going to discuss how elite investors win the mental game. Denise Scholl is the CEO of the Rethink Group and author of Market Mind Games, a book that had a massive impact on both my investing game and my poker game. Market Mind Games shows how investors who prioritize emotion and the resolution of psychological roadblocks make better decisions and achieve superior performance. At the Rethink Group, Denise leverages her background in neuroscience and modern psychoanalysis to solve the mental mysteries of successful investing, trading, competing, and leading teams. Forcing Function Hour, we have a fireside chat followed by a Q&A. If you're joining us live, we're taking questions via the Q&A function at the bottom, so upvote the questions that you want to hear. With that, let's get started. Thanks for joining us, Denise. Great to see you again. Excited to dig in. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for asking me. Absolutely. So let's start it with Market Mind Games. What would you say is the key insight that led you to start writing Market Mind Games? Oh, that traders and investors have what's, and hang with me for a minute, an unconscious transference to the market. So like in psychoanalysis and even in general psychology, we know that people in our adult years will react to a partner or a boss, the way that they might've reacted as a child, or like they'll create the same experience. So I I knew that I had a master's degree in neuropsychoanalysis before I ever became a trader, but I didn't know until I inadvertently started coaching that people use the market in psychoanalysis, it's called a transfer object. But basically, it's like a Rorschach blot. You know, people project onto the market their self-image, basically. And I actually figured that out after I started coaching, like I just said. So then it was like, oh, my gosh, I have to write about this. So this idea of projecting their self-image onto the market, I think that's really profound. I would love to hear an example of how an investor could do this to their detriment. (laughs) fairly common one is like expecting to be wrong, expecting to be criticized. And so therefore, like always second guessing themselves and reacting out of that impulse to avoid the criticism. But in doing so, like literally never being able to hear their intuition or unconscious pattern recognition. I mean, there's it is like fingerprint. So like, you know, if I look at your fingerprint versus my fingerprint, to me, they look pretty much the same, right? But they're obviously very different. So it is like that with, I mean, I think it's fractal in that we have these small experiences and we re-experience those experiences in bigger and different circumstances. But perfectionism, like I have a client who I would normally say, and I almost answered thinking of him, like he grew up, he wasn't criticized. He was always the smartest kid in the class. He's actually very happy-go-lucky. He can talk to anyone. And he just like expects it to work. 
like he's always expected it to work from when he was 22 years old and got a job at like an investment bank being a sales trader. It's recently come to light though, down deep underneath all that, just expecting it to work, which has brought him to where he is at 40 some years old. There's like a perfectionist buried in there, which I've been working with him since March of 2019. And it's like news to me just in the past month or so. Expecting to be criticized, attempting to be perfect, you know, in the market environment, which is so uncertain, right? And unknowable and unpredictable. And there's no such thing as perfection. It's a really common personality trait that comes from a person's experience before they were 20 years old, and in most cases before they were 10. But they don't really realize, you know, they're trying to come up with the perfect model when they're really just trying to avoid somebody criticizing them. One paradigm that was a real red pill for me was control theory, that whenever we're acting some way that doesn't feel like it's in our best interest, what we're doing is actually serving ourselves, right? We're just not serving ourselves in the way we think we are. We're satisfying this higher order urge. And if reading Market Mind Games, this is a real epiphany, realizing that everyone thinks that they're playing poker or investing to make money, but their actual intent can become decoupled from that in the moment where they're looking for validation or they're looking for a rush or they're looking for an opportunity to prove how smart they are or to make the perfect decision. Talk to me about that. How can we become aware of when our in-the-moment urges become divorced from our long-term intentions? Yeah, there's a couple of ways to attack that. One is to first always think in terms of, is this intuition, and we can divine intuition, but like for now, let's accept it's a valid form of knowledge, or impulse. And if it's intuition, it's calm, by the way, and it's an actual expectation about how things will unfold based on one's experience and how many times they've seen those set of factors come together and price do X, Y, or Z. Impulse is, it's really acting out a feeling that's irrelevant. So the trick is to learn to know yourself well enough to know which feeling is truly impulse and which is irrelevant, you know, impulse. Jennifer Lerner of Harvard, who's studied emotions and decision-making calls them integral that's intuition or incidental, meaning, you know, just incidental, like kind of irrelevant. Another way that I think of it and try to help people is like think in terms of some spectrum of competence or conviction is hedge funds, confidence is traders, probably poker players, but it's the same, like this feeling that you're right. Well, that feeling that you're right balances on kind of a triangle of fear of missing out, fear of future regret, need to be right, you know, need to avoid criticism. And then it gets a little bit more personal. So it's layered. Like all those feelings, just like intuition and impulse are going to most of the time coexist. The trick is to know what they are and then figure out really which feeling you want to have in the future, but which feeling is giving you a piece of information. And then having the courage essentially to act on that information and just being able to tolerate the other feeling, not act it out. I think I answered. That seems like a key challenge that we have, obviously, that becomes more difficult today is the discerning signal from noise, or as you put it, what is relevant? 
right? We have all of these feelings or intuitions and trying to discern which of these are actually giving us information that's relevant for our decision and which of these are actually, you know, deep seated things that are affecting us or maybe steering us aside. I love how you talk about the power of externalization, that if you have this, this query you can get at, well, what is the information that will actually change my decision? That's a very simple one that I've done with clients. You mentioned conviction or say, okay, well, from zero to hundred percent, what's your level of conviction? Just put a number on it. The actual number, not maddening all as much as, okay, well, what would lower your conviction? What would raise your conviction? And if there's a feeling or new information that wouldn't change it, then by definition, it's irrelevant. Yeah. There's a whole body of work called emotion differentiation and emotion granularity. And what that basically means is the more you can differentiate among your feelings and emotions, which we can consider synonymous, it's just a matter of intensity. And the more you can be granular. So differentiate is like, is it fear, frustration, disappointment? Granularity, it will take the fear category. Is it like worry or is it panic or terror? Or on the other hand, bulletproof, you know, the opposite. Like, I think that fear, the confidence thing exists on the spectrum. But just being able to put the feeling into words and even the attempt to put it into words. Like you mentioned that to me earlier, what am I feeling and why? Like, what am I feeling and why? It's a simple thing for me to say, right? It's not that easy to do. But if you do it, and you learn to get it right, or mostly right, you'll get more information. If you get the impulsive feeling correct, like I feel like this because I'm afraid of that, it oftentimes loses its motivational energy. But you just go, oh, well, I don't want to do that because I want to prove to my mom that I'm as smart as my older brother, you know, or whatever, like that has nothing to do with this. But until you externalize it, to use your word, it has an urgency that, you know, it wants you to act it out. And then you go, why did I do that? It seems to me, let me know if I'm understanding this right, that we need to feel our feelings, that if we deny their existence or don't discern what the source is, we're doomed to act them out in context we might not want to. But if we give ourselves an opportunity to admit what's going on, to understand it, to work with it, Presumably, we can defang it, right? It no longer holds power over us. Is that what you believe? Like, if you suppress it and don't want to feel it sooner or later, you're going to act it out. Period. I don't care how many days or weeks or months in a row you're disciplined, like, you're going to act it out. Or you're going to act it out outside of trading. Or, you know, you're going to act it out something outside of life into trading. A much better way is like to feel it. It's a skill to feel one's feelings. And Quite a few people have been so trained not to that there's a process to learn the skill. And there are inhibitors also in the process, in addition to having learned not to. But yeah, just literally, the first step is I'm going to say this because some people are already wondering, I know, like, just be willing to, like, I'm willing to feel all my feelings. Like, nothing bad's going to happen, actually, believe it or not. We fear feeling them. You know, I'm a big Cleveland Browns fan. And so I'm in Browns Twitter and, and somebody was just tweeting at the Browns that they need me, you know, and I'm like, look, in their attempt to be fearless, they're actually just showing they're afraid of their fear, which is what happens. You know, it's 
it's respectable to say we're fearless. But really what you're afraid of is feeling the fear. Like, like somehow if you feel it, you're going to act it. And it's, it's literally the exact opposite. So yes, feeling our feelings, putting them into words, understanding what they're really about, being able to like sort and categorize. Well, this one's about that. And this one's about that. Or what is often ends up being the case is you have a strong feeling and some percentage of it, like is your psychology, is your self-image, is your fractal. But another, you know, 60, 70, 80% of it is your market read and being able to say, I'm going to tolerate my fear of being criticized because I, I actually cognitively know that's irrelevant and I'm going to act on this pattern recognition and I'm going to be damn nervous while I'm doing it. But I can be nervous, like the sun's not going to crash or anything. So this improvement of a skill, I think that's such a valuable framing for anything is that you can develop the skill and improve that skill in anything. And it feels like a lot of motivation to continue to invest effort into something is to realize that we're making progress. So I would love to hear more, you know, how is this skill trained? What have you seen work for someone to improve at this? And how does someone know that they're making progress? Well, from the moment I started speaking publicly about this, I've noticed that sometimes people hear it and they can do it. You know, they just, it clicks and they start listening to their feelings and they end up saying things like, you know, I was kind of always using my feelings, but I couldn't admit it to anyone. You know, and all of that is, you know, however they were raised, it wasn't so, you know, shunned for them to be able to. Other people can really dive into learning about it and get better. Other people, a lot of people admittedly, you know, need help. You need another human being to help you understand this very human facility. And so someone you're talking to who is asking you questions and who can see from the outside that you're probably feeling one thing, even though you think it's another, or you think you're not feeling anything. You know, and then it becomes what's that person's method of helping you and how do they ask questions and is it effective and how do they interact with resistances and defense mechanisms that were originally there for good reason? It's a question of, you know, maybe now as a 40-year-old adult, do they really help you anymore? So honestly, it's everything from some people can hear it and make sense of it to other people are coached for years and kind of everything in between. I got this one from my partner, actually, when she coaches me, as all good partners do, it's the more rational you are, the better you are at rationalizing your current behavior. So what you describe is needing someone who can call you out and listen what's going on, right? Because especially when we're worked up, when we're being overcome by fear, disappointment, frustration, what are these emotions, our perception becomes distorted. So needing someone who has the implicit permission to call us out and to call awareness to what's going on, we, we would normally just overlook or overwrite that part of ourselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, there is such a thing in psychoanalysis, or at least in modern psychoanalysis, that modern is different than Freudian in a lot of ways. Like Freudian will really try to bust through all your stuff to like exactly what in your child is called you to do this. Modern is not so much that way. It's like work with the person and just help them to have new emotional experiences that they can draw on. But in any event, there's something, and I know modern at this point better than Freudian, but 
called the intellectual defense. Some people have the answer for everything and it makes perfect sense to them. That's like the trickiest client. I have a guy, he's a private equity guy in a firm with like 12 partners. They opened a new fund and he was one of the few that didn't get the bigger, newer title. So he hired me to help him like improve his leadership and his communication. He's wonderful. I've been working with him for two years in January, but intellectually defended is against really understanding, like answer for everything. <laughs> I've gotten to the point where I just tell him that now. You got an answer for everything. But I know as a modern, with my modern psychoanalytic training, that you don't actually want to bust directly through someone's resistances. Like, I don't want to hit them over the head in a, you know, in a way some other famous coach might do. It doesn't do any good, really. It's not going to help the person in the long. You got to kind of guide them little by little. In Market Mind Games, you talk about the power of story. It's something that I've witnessed in my own poker play and trading is as soon as I get caught up in a narrative about what's going on, I'm in real trouble. So you think about this as paying attention to the chart or how I'm doing on the current session or the current quarter, whatever scoreboard you want to use and trying to get back to where I was before or to keep this current narrative going. What strategies do you use to help clients keep their eye on the long-term and not get caught up in some of these stories that can distort their decision-making? I try to ask really good questions. And sometimes I might say, I don't know. Sort of seems to me like maybe could that be, you know, and I put it that way specifically. So as to not raise the defenses, but like it brings to mind, I have a professional athlete client who's incredibly self-critical. I mean, like, and I've been working with this person for a long time and they are like really seriously successful in their sport. But we were recently talking about like their publicity. They don't get the publicity they deserve given their. And I pointed out that someone I know in finance PR, you know, looked at their Instagram, looked at their publicity and thought, why does this, why is this person got a way bigger profile? And then instead of saying, oh, great idea. Can I work with this person? What can we do? What are his ideas? Oh my God, I screwed that up. I've hired the wrong person. I was like, yeah, no, you did not hire the wrong person. But that's getting caught up in that narrative. Like, whatever. It's a learning experience. You know, you hire somebody who doesn't work out. You hire, you know, you find somebody else who does a better job. You, you didn't make a mistake, but totally absorbed in the narrative. And that's what people do in the market because like, you know, you're taking trades or investing and the market's doing what it's doing. And you can put any narrative on that you want and the market's going to participate. Like it is. And if you're just in your own head, you have like no way to get out of that. Right. And what people will always or almost always try to do is perfect their system. Add another indicator, add another model, like do more work. I mean, I've seen that in hedge funds so many times, you know, stay up all night tonight and do all the analysis on what so-and-so and so in China is doing and come to back with me in the morning, the recommendation. Ah. In any event, I mean, it's human nature to tell a story and we all 
see ourselves in a story, the back to, we all have a self-image of where do we fit and how's authority going to treat us in the markets and authority figure, you know, like how you expect to be treated by authority or, you know, really famous people or people with high authority, like what you expect to get from them is going to be what you expect to get from the market. So it helps to know that you have this expectation going in, which is irrelevant. And like the market doesn't know you exist and it can pay you or not pay you. The quote that I love is that expectations are a prison, right? Once you place this frame on what's going on, you're only going to find evidence that confirms that frame and you're going to miss anything that goes against it. So being very careful about using your expectations to determine your perception. It seems like a lot of this, what you talk about, the, the quest for a perfect system is almost trying to regain a sense of control or to cope with the inherent uncertainty and ambiguity that goes with trying to predict a extremely complex adaptive system, which can't be done. Is there any strategies that you've seen for helping people cope with this uncertainty, ambiguity to have a, a healthier relationship with it? I've actually had people like, I've done this in workshops where I have people create some piece of art around their distaste for the ambiguity and uncertainty. So like write a song, write a poem, draw. I mean, I can't draw to save my life, but, but anything like no one knows, like literally no one knows. And what we do know is ambiguous. I say that I like remind you know, serious people who manage billions of dollars, I remind them of that on a regular basis. And almost every time I say it, well, you know, like you don't know right now, but no one else does either. They're silent. Inconvenient truth. <laughs> yeah, you can tell they're going, wait, wait, wait. I, no, you don't know. Like that's actually an advantage if you can just remember that you don't know, no, neither does anyone else. So let's, navigate it as best we can. And that's it. Like you got to learn to love the adventure of it. We don't have to, but it's helpful if you learn to love the adventure of it, which uh, by definition, you know, has to leave you open to being wrong. So back to the art, you know, write a poem. There's somewhere buried on our website because it was like over a decade ago. is a poem that a client wrote in a workshop about ambiguity and it is hysterical. I had, I did some workshop, you know, it was like online and it was like online on Friday, like a week apart. And that was the, one of the assignments. And this guy came back with this poem that absolutely was like hands down winner. I can't recite it. And I couldn't even find it on my website. If Tasha wants to find it, oh, look, just like that, Ode to Ambiguity. Tasha, you're amazing. It seems like the the largest narrative of all is the narrative of identity. And what you describe is this, how do you stay in this game for the long term is almost separating your identity of who you are as a person and who you are as an investor and a trader. And that way, mistakes being wrong aren't threats to your own identity. And if you're able to maintain that separation, it allows you to be curious and to explore what reality is actually telling you versus what you actually think is going on. So I wonder your thoughts there. I mean, obviously, psychology has so much to say about our identity and how our self-image and how we see ourselves 
affects how we do things. Do you see that with successful traders that they're able to maintain this separation of who they are as an investor and who they are as a person outside of the game? Would you be mad if I said no? You know, the thing that I'm constantly reminded of is we're all human beings and we all, by definition, have some sort of insecurity as, you know, virtue of being a human being in an environment that's like, from a decision point of view, basically impossible, yet some people do it, right? So I take it from the other point of view. Let's dig into that identity and figure out which part's really about your market performance and which part's about who you were when you were 20 years old and who you were taught to be growing up. And so that we know like this set of feelings goes in that bucket, this set of feelings goes in that bucket, this set of feelings goes in that bucket. And we can tolerate the hit star identity. I've called it tick by tick assault on your ego. In deference to a more here and now prediction about what this price action or these set of factors is telling us. So there may be other ways to do it, like better ways to do it that people can detach. That never worked for me personally being like the introspective only child who had nothing to do but think about why she was the way she was growing up. It's not a random thing that I have a master's degree in psychoanalysis. So I just take it from the other, other angle. But what you get ultimately is you can neutralize that somewhat or you can neutralize it enough to navigate the market. And then as you do well, you create a new emotional experience that can be an antidote to the early emotional experience. And you start to gain a different sort of view of yourself. Talk to me about the concept of psychological capital and psychological leverage. I thought these were so profound. You know, when I started trading back in 94, I read all the trading psychology books and yeah, I get it. Plan the trade, trade the plan. And I was always by nature a disciplined person anyway, being the only child who had nobody to play with and nothing better to do but my homework. But I could see that it, like there was a point at which it doesn't work. Then I learned from the neuroeconomist that when you're faced with uncertainty, like your brain is compelled to make a decision. This is a big deal. Everyone should listen to this. When you're faced with uncertainty, it's physically uncomfortable, like we were already talking about. You don't like it. And if you make a decision, it momentarily makes you feel certain. So it momentarily puts the discomfort of the uncertainty like aside. So you feel better. And then you go, why the heck did I do that? <laughs> well, because you were actually assuaging uncertainty. So anyway, back to the question, psychological capital. When I first talked about this, it was literally just because I'd heard that you had to have emotion to make a decision based on Antonio Damasio Descartes, frankly, and some other actual academic research he did. And I was like, that changes everything. And then as I started to think about it, I was like, wait a minute. Plan the trade, trade the plan, be 100% disciplined, take it. All of that is like asking us to be a robot. But if we were really a robot, we couldn't make a decision. So there's this whole other dimension, and it's the other dimension that makes us successful. Granted, you have to have a decent plan, but like or decent understanding of the market, but it's how you execute. And I'm like, wait a minute, if it's how you execute, then there's like this whole other kind of capital that supports how you execute that's separate from your plan. 
And so I just like, that's like psychological capital. And it's the thing that makes you do what you want. Now that was before, long before I knew that the brain is always predicting and always predicting a future feeling. And what really happens is we have our data, our analysis, and whatever method it is, whatever method it is, you think you make a decision on that data. You make a decision about how you feel about that data and how you think acting on it will make you feel in the future. That's what makes you do something. You don't know it, but that's what's making you do something. So that's this whole other category of information over here that can be analyzed, understood, leveraged, or ignored to your detriment. And that it's multiplicative. I have a post called Play to Win where I said the you know, people think of, of just, okay, I'm going to have this great strategy. Well, no, you have to think, well, how many, what are your opportunities to apply that strategy and what's your ability to execute upon it? And if you have a low score in any of these three dimensions, you have a low score across the board that your strategy is only as good as your ability to execute it. So ignoring this whole emotional side of the plane is completely shooting yourself in the foot. Absolutely. Like, absolutely. And Look, the market is actually not that complicated. You know, it goes up and it goes down and it goes sideways depending on your time frame. And depending on your time frame, like it can go down before it goes up or up before it goes down. Like it can't, it doesn't actually do that many things. And there's a, an unlimited amount of opportunities. So there's a million ways to play the market and be successful. If you're going to have edge or leverage, make it yourself. Everybody can learn some method that a person who has the right mentality would be able to make money with. So do something that not everyone is doing that is the thing anyway, right? I mean. It's something that you talk about. Everyone's reading the same books. Everyone's seeing the same Twitter feed that you need to find a different dimension that others aren't competing on in order to find your edge. And this is the one that almost everyone is neglecting. And there's just infinite depth in order to improve. So if you can put yourself in the position to make good decisions, whatever that means for you in terms of having the right energetic approach, having the ability to focus, to go deep on things when you see a thread that's worth pulling on, that gives you the ability to trust the process and that your portfolio, the performance at the end of the day will take care of itself if you put yourself in this position to make good decisions. But if not, you are completely susceptible to that ability. And many times it will hurt you more than it helps you if you don't put the necessary attention into it. Yeah. 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 Totally agree. And you really make the point. This was another big paradigm shift for me in poker. So background for you, Denise, like in poker, everyone thinks of this in the similar way is trying to create this perfect strategy. They're running all of their models. They're doing all of their regressions and having this strategy that they can just robotically execute. And they're surprised when the results they have, when they actually play are very different than the results they projected on their models, because they forget, Hey, there's actually a human clicking the buttons. 
And there's a whole other meta dimension of this is there's a human on the other side of the screen who has these feelings, who has these in the moment urges, which can diverge from their long-term desires. And so my approach has been understanding that person on the other side of the screen and thinking about this psychological leverage that I have on them, that I can both make better decisions, be more disciplined for longer periods of time, but I can also sense when these urges are diverging and take advantage of that because everyone's urges diverge. Yeah. Yeah. So when I first started trading, these guys who were really fabulous trading, I mean, they'd all been on the floor, but they were trading upstairs. It was 1994 in Chicago. And they would always talk about what, can't you see what they're doing? Can't you see what he's doing? And of course, to me at that point, it was still a bunch of numbers on the screen. Right. I was like, who's the he and who is the they? Like, it didn't make any sense to me. And then I did have some talent for it, which is how I landed there because these guys thought I would. And, but I didn't know why. And then this research was done at Caltech that showed basically people who were good at predicting price action were using theory of mind, which is a psychological term for you have a theory of the other person's mind. So I was like, that's it. And that was the he and the they. And oh, yeah, really, it is all other people. And even though there's a lot of algorithms, behind those algorithms are actual people. And I've had drinks with them and they talk about recalibrating their models, sometimes on a daily basis, which means it's like robotic trading with, you know, discretionary trading with a robotic arm. So it's a social game. There's only value because people say there's value. There's only price change because somebody thinks the price should be different. Like, so thinking of it in terms of who's going to pay what is like the brain research shows that's the thing to do. And if you, whenever you talk to these guys who manage billions of dollars, they've learned to think in terms of sentiment. A word I've heard this year that I hadn't heard so much in previous years, but seems to be everybody's word this year, positioning. Well, positioning is driving this move, meaning other people are in this trade already. You know, other people are short, whatever. People. I mean, we did an intuition brain game around this study, this theory of mind study. That's on our website too. It's really hard for people to play because you basically have to totally divorce yourself from any thought and just answer with what your body tells you. But it uses the classic theory of mind experiment, which is shapes moving around a page. And if you cannot listen to your cognition, not try to figure out the answer, your body will tell you like what those shapes are going to do. Why? Because you've watched people walk down the street your whole life, you know, because we have this unconscious sense of story that we can analyze. And that's what price action is, which kind of market players are doing what? The beginning of the year, you know, during the whole GameStop thing, I had journalists calling me and like, how can this be? I don't know. There's, I don't know how many millions of day traders on Reddit that maybe not any particular one of them has a lot of money, but together and they're trading as a group. That's a new group. Melvin Capel probably wishes they had more respect for that group than they did. A lot of things that go on to be big were dismissed for a long time, right? dismissing things that feel like toys that feel like play at your own peril. You bring up an interesting point around noticing emotion in your body. I imagine a lot of this audience tends to 
they tend to lead with their mind. And I know personally, I, I forget the rest of my body is there. It's like, I'm just a floating brain in the vat. So something that I've actively worked on that, you know, yoga and meditation have assisted with obviously a long journey is just being conscious to my body and the signals that it's telling me, you know, I would love to know personally or observationally, what types of signals you see where something happens in your body and it tips you off. that There's something that's going off in your emotions. Yeah. So just as a backstop to all of it, there's actual research that shows the better you are in teroception, which is knowing what's going on with your body, the better trader or investor you are. So there was like research done in, in London, the better the traders could track their own heart rate, the better trading decisions they made. You know, George Soros is famous for saying he got a pain in his back and he knew he should get out. You know, again, it's like be willing, practice noticing outside of trading. Like my classic example is your wife sends you to Home Depot on Saturday and you're like, oh my God, the traffic and the lines and all of that. And like, you're going to be annoyed and irritated and want to get back to watch a football game or whatever. Like notice because your heart rate gone up or your palms clammy, like learn to pay attention in the way that golfers do. Like we don't want to pay any attention to our feelings, but man, we'll pay a really indescribable amount of attention to learn to swing a golf club to what our bodies. <laughs> it's the same, you know, now you have like a sense of something you know, hot or cold, then you have a feeling which has got a little bit more intensity. Like it's got some meaning. Like I feel like I should hit that ball to the right a bit because the wind seems to be coming from whatever direction you would want to hit the ball to the right to, oh my God, I can't believe that happened. Those are all physical experiences, just a different level of intensity with a different amount of information in them about a different thing. You can develop a dictionary on yourself of what kinds of you know, experiences below your chin you have in different circumstances. And the more you do that, the more you're able to act out of the sense feeling that is unconscious pattern recognition and less do you have to act out of the impulse, which is some very energized thing to avoid some disaster in the future generally. Imagine a disaster. Yeah, this mindset that everything we do is an opportunity to be aware, to practice, and getting away from this mindset of, I'm going to turn it on when I need it. That the more examples, the more evidence that we have that we can tap into this, the more we'll be able to trust this intuition and thus to act upon it. Because all of these opportunities are temporal. We can't wait for perfect information in anything. But if we have evidence, oh, the last time that I felt this way, it went really well. Or the last time it, I felt this way, I really overlooked that thing. That can act as a trigger for ourselves to go deeper, to kind of snap us out. So yeah, something that I try to think about is if I want to be a high performer, it can't just be a high performer in one area of my life. It's everything ties into it. Everything is this opportunity to practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, that saying how a person does one thing is how they do all things. It's really true. It's really true. I was going to say something, but I forgot what it was. So 
do you think that context plays a large role in decision making? So where we are, who we're with? Everything. Well, context in markets is, let's just take the sort of cleaner version. You know, no price means anything except in relationship to previous price. Like, if it didn't, you wouldn't notice if something was up or down, just to be, you know, black and white about it. But like a price five minutes before U.S. unemployment has different meaning than 10 minutes after. Like, the implications, which is what we're always looking for, are always colored by the context, by the pretext, you know, by what came before. I mean, you can't, everybody try to think about it. Pick a price of any asset. Be nothing about it other than that price. What would you know? You wouldn't know anything. Whether it's cheap, expensive, up or down, you wouldn't know nothing. It's that way with everything. I mean, the latest brain research shows, you know, we're always predicting, always predicting a future feeling, all on past experience. It's only the past that gives anything meaning, like, because it's all relative to either what's already happened or what we've learned from the past. Now, what does that mean? There's an opportunity in there to like use being more in the present, which will still be using context, but untangling your own personal past or the last trade or investment or the fight you had with your teenager or whatever, like from the moment of your making the, the risk decision. There's context and there's the, the feeling and emotional context, which I talk about in the book, which is like, the vast majority of the decision input. And it seems you're saying that it all begins with developing a sensitivity to it, that that becomes a license to be able to change it, to create a context which is more favorable. Well, yeah, my way of looking at the world and what, you know, what I've done to help people is just sort out what's what, which expectations and which feelings that go with those expectations are really about your market context and not really about your self-image context. Because in a perfect world, we could divorce our self-image from the expectation. That'd be great, except we generally can't do it. Now, people are going to say, well, I know so-and-so and I know so-and-so. Like what happens is you go from a novice to an expert, you develop confidence. And what confidence tells you is that you face these challenges before and you've come out okay, or on top, or you've won. Like as you learn to play poker, you develop confidence that you knew how to play poker. Like that allowed you to what? Play poker better. Like that's the process of going from amateur novice to expert. You develop confidence that you have an ability to succeed in some set of circumstances. So Someone who looks like they have no emotions or, you know, looks like they're totally fearless or resilient, they just feel like it'll work out. Why do they feel like it'll work out? Maybe, like my client I mentioned earlier, you know, he had a growing up experience where everything worked out because he was like 40 times smarter than anybody else in the room. But most of us don't have that experience, right? So we go through some process to develop confidence. Like you do, think of it like a sport. Anybody that's done any sport, you went from not having a clue 
how to hit the ball or ski down the slope or to knowing you didn't know how. <laughs> like little by little, you develop confidence that you could do this thing. I don't remember what you asked me because I got off on my confidence kick, but. I love it. Last question. And then I have a couple from the, the Q&A before we wrap. We talked about externalization before and the power of having an objective record of our decision-making so we could go back and improve our process to be able to capture some of this context so we can be better recognizers of patterns in the future. For someone who's looking to begin or amplify this practice of tracking their decision-making, what recommendations would you have? One of my favorite is and this may happen in other programs, but Microsoft OneNote lets you tag, like you write some text and tag it. And you can even create custom tags. So like back when I was trading, I had my trading journal in Microsoft OneNote. You know, each week was a section or what, I don't remember, but then I tag it. And then like that was stupid, Denise, or, you know, bought right before it made a new high as opposed to after it made, whatever. You can create them. You can go pull a chart up and then you can see not so much the text, your cognitive explanation of what you did, but you can see a chart of your tags, which is kind of like a tagging, a chart of your psychological capital. You can see which mistakes you made the most often. What I would find is that I would be like mad at myself for having a so-so week. And it was inevitably like one or two trades out of 50. Like that tells you something. When you look at your actual data and see it's those one or two times you got stubborn, you know, but 48 out of 50 times you did a decent job. It's like, well, yeah, I don't really want to get stubborn anymore. But that's my best single tip for that is Microsoft OneNote and Tags or any other sort of software that does that. That's the only one I know. Cool. I got some good questions here in the Q&A. Let's start with this question from GT. So GT says, what's the best way to change your self-concept from a successful small trader to a successful big trader? Is this something that you've seen that people are afraid of taking the next step and going big and thus they hold themselves back? Oh, that's really, really, really common. You got to figure out why. Like, what would it mean if you got to the next level? Then usually it means like, there's usually threats within it. You know, how will family and friends feel about it? What will my obligations be? You know, who will want money from me? There's a series of threats in the next level. Figure out what they are. And if you're ready to tackle them, you know, we get more complicated than that. But I think that's a good next step for someone trying to make that next step. What's the threats in it? And what would you have to do to, to navigate that threat? I get more complicated, but... Yeah, it, it seems like it goes back to acknowledging what's going on and being able to deal with these perceived threats can allow you to be more confident in what you're doing to move from a avoidance mentality to more of an approach mentality. Yeah, and let me just say this. It's a truism. And I realize I'm talking in my book here, but it's also true. Almost everyone has feelings they don't realize they have. And it just is helpful if you have someone helping you figure out without any judgment, like just what they are, you know, they're below the surface of consciousness or they're semi-conscious and you're avoiding them or they're completely unconscious. You know, that's where their true leverage is. Ideally resolving some of them 
Like, let's just say, you know, I mean, I've had clients over the years who are conflicted about their family in small town, Nebraska, if they make another million dollars and continue to live in Sweden for another five years. They don't really know it. They just kind of, they say, oh, I miss my family or my family misses me or it's more like, do I fit? Who am I? You know, back to the very first thing we talked about, self-image. But you start with, first of all, just try to imagine the next level. Oftentimes you can't imagine it. You want it cognitively, you can't imagine it emotionally. But like try just, you know, courageously and go, well, what would it feel like? And what would happen? And don't judge any of it. Just try to, you're just trying to figure out what's in there. And then go, sometimes you find out what you think would happen. You're like, oh, well, I'm not really afraid of that. Next question is from Jack asking about how to trust his feelings more. So Jack noticed that sometimes some trading decisions he makes, he feels very calm, but other decisions feel forced or rushed. What recommendations would you have for Jack who's had this realization of very different feelings depending on the trade? Yeah. What am I feeling and why? And you start asking yourself that constantly and writing the answers down and then correlating it to what happens in the trade. And to connect it to what we just said a couple of minutes ago, you could do it in Microsoft OneNote and, and create different tags for different types of feeling experiences. And then you'll start to have a better dictionary on yourself of which feeling means what to you. Yeah. And just recognizing that these feelings have data. If you're feeling rushed or stressed about a decision, maybe that can be a trigger to pause and to take a step back. And as Denise said, if you can figure out why you can figure out something that will allow you to get past that, or perhaps prevent you from making something that you might regret later. Yeah, I am. Um, I was going to say, well, the rushed is, you know, probably impulse and the, the non-rush, but it, the way he asked the question, I wasn't sure that was the case. It sounded like maybe all of those feelings could lead to good trades. I will say this over the years. I mean, this is anecdotal from this side of the chair, but it seems like over and over and over and over again, the best trades come out of like this calm sense of I'm sure I'm right. And I must be wrong because it can't be this easy. And being able to like navigate through the coexistence of those two feelings. Yeah, I think it's something that's implicit, but is worth stating is that all behavior, all feelings are relative to a baseline. So if you understand how it usually feels, you can be more sensitive to any deviations from that. And again, the importance of the record, because is a rush decision a bad decision? Maybe, maybe not. Is a calm decision a good decision? Maybe, maybe not. But if you have past evidence that you've found correlations between feelings and results, that contains a lot of information. That's the, if you have the evidence. So if you've paid attention to yourself, tracked yourself, you know, recorded it, contemplated it, and then you know, like, I just got that feeling because I just got this, these three pieces of information. Okay, that means that might be rushed. But it's not really. It's a result of a lot of work you put into that moment. Cool. Question from Al. I think everyone's interested in this. Is we covered a lot of ground from psychology, as, as we always do, Denise. Any books or academic literature you'd recommend for someone who wants to go deeper into these topics, particularly the, the difference between impulse and intuition? 
Emotional Agility by Susan David is really good for that. I will tell you lately, some of my clients have been complaining about her audio voice, complaining about the tone. So I don't know about that, but her basic idea that you have to have all your feelings and, and learn to sort through them. Another one is Lisa Feldman Barrett's Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. Now, Lisa is going to say you're always predicting. You're always, always, always predicting. She is not going to deal with unconscious emotional predictions. That's Brian Newton of Stanford, but he hasn't written any popular literature yet. So, I mean, you can look him up, but even I get lost in like his most recent meta-analysis summary paper he's putting together. Last question is from Steve. Steve wants to know, what do you think is the best time to engage a coach, someone to be this objective third-party observer of yourself and uncover some of these emotions, some of these biases, some of the ways that you're steering yourself in the wrong direction? Is there, there a prerequisite? Is there a correct timing with this? What have you found works as far as initiating this type of relationship? I think it's when you... At least, you know, you have a sense of what you're doing. You've had some success, you know, or like you can be successful for part of a day and not for another part of the day, but you can see that you don't always do the things you want to do. Get somebody to help you. I mean, if I think back to my, well, I had kind of had a built-in coach in a way though, where I was trading. So I guess that doesn't really count. I, I will tell you most of the professionals you know, these guys that are managing more than a billion dollars, most of them call when they've had a bad streak. Some of them call in advance. Like I just got a guy that left one fund to go to another fund that's going to let him manage a fund within their fund. And then they're going to back him to spin out his own fund. And he's like, okay, I finally got into this like goal I've had and I'm going to get a coach. So either like, I don't know if you have some sense of what you're doing and but you can't always do it. Coach could probably help you. If you need to get out of a mistake, for sure. By the way, I'll just give you a really quick trick. Like if you're in some sort of slump, go back to when it started and forget everything in the middle. Figure out why it started. And which part of like, oh my God, I'm so mad at myself for that back then. Because you're trading off of that. You're trading off your feelings about that. And then you're just spiraling downward. It's true for traders, athletes, whatever. Go back to the beginning. And not thinking about something as trying to fix it, but more the positive frame of I'm already doing well, but maybe I could be doing even better. And when you're in something that's really competitive, any edge counts. You don't know what you don't know. And especially when it comes to emotion, to feeling, assume that are things that you are doing that you are completely unaware of. So you don't even know how you could be helped. That's the truest thing that was said here. Assume you're doing things that you're completely unaware. I mean, it's a different way of saying what I said. We have an unconscious and we don't know it, but like, it, it's the truth. Everybody wants to spend more time on their system, but it's usually not where you can get the most bang for the buck. Opportunity cost. Everything that we're doing is coming at the expense of what we're not doing. It's very it's very tempting to go back to the well, to do the thing that gives us a sense of control that we know we can do. It can be a little bit scary to wade into the waters of the uncertainty and the ambiguity, but that's where a lot of the opportunities lie. Absolutely. Great. Thank you so much for being here, Denise. It was a wonderful opportunity to talk with you, to go to the source. Any final thoughts, any place you'd want to send listeners? 
I mean, you can stop by our website. <laughs> we are doing a workshop. I'm going to do a comprehensive public workshop in a way that I haven't done before, which is Market Mind Games Live. But there's zillions of books and interviews and whatnot on there if you want to study, you know, on your own. But I would just say, what am I feeling and why? Like, learn to answer that question accurately. And it's like I said, easy to say, but not so easy to do. But if you do it, and when you do it, I'll say one more thing. Like if you're really agitated and you, you know, something's distracting, whatever, try to do this. What am I feeling and why? When you get to the real why, you will no longer be agitated. Love it. Thank you so much, Denise. Thank you all for joining us. At Forcing Function, we teach performance architecture. We work with a select group of 12 executives and investors, teaching how to multiply their output, perform at their peak, design a life of freedom and purpose. If you want to learn more, you can download our Peak Performance Workbook for free at experimentwithoutlimits.com. Subscribe to our newsletter to find out about upcoming events with amazing guests like Denise. Thanks again, Denise. Thank you, guys. See you again soon. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Forcing Function Hour. At Forcing Function, we teach performance architecture. We work with a select group of 12 executives and investors to teach them how to multiply their output, perform at their peak, and design a life of freedom and purpose. Make sure to subscribe to Forcing Function Hour for more great episodes, or go to forcingfunctionhour.com to sign up for our newsletter so you can join us live. Music